Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. Before we get to the episode, there's something I want to talk to you about that means a lot to us. The Western Conservation and Hunting Expo is coming up in less than two weeks, February 8th through the 11th at the Salt Palace Convention Center in downtown Salt Lake. Now, if you've never been, this is the biggest hunting expo event of the year, and it is a lot of fun. Now, we've been attending the expo for years and years just as guests. This is the second year now that we've actually been invited back to also give a couple of seminars. Now, these seminars are centered on backcountry hunting. Our first seminar will be Friday night at 5.30 p.m. in room 150G. Uh, these seminars take place just outside of the main expo floor, if you've ever been. And if not, don't worry. They label and sign everything really well, and you'll be able to find your way to room 150G. That seminar will be gear to take on your backcountry adventure or gear to bring in your backcountry pack. The second seminar and second topic will be Saturday morning at 10 a.m., also in room 150G, and that'll be utilizing pack animals. So not only are we going to talk the normal, you know, horses and mules and utilizing guides and drop camps, but we're also going to talk about our specialty, which is pack llamas, and then we'll have some information for you on pack goats as well. So we're going to run the gamut of utilizing pack animals for the backcountry. The second thing that I want to talk to you about is the gear that we're, we've got lined up to give away at our seminars. Uh, we've partnered with some of the best in the industry and we've gotten them to give us uh, gear to give to you guys. And we've partnered with companies like Mountain Ops, First Light, Kestrel Knives, Sunto Watches and GPS, Kafaru, Crispy, and, and a few others. Now, normally, we'll still have gear to just give out at the seminar. There will be gear that you don't have to do anything uh, other than just show up to the seminar. And that's one way to get entered to win some of this stuff that we're going to give away. And I don't mean entered to win like, you know, it's a big production or we're going to get a bunch of information from you or anything. But there will be a couple of extra uh, ways that you can enter and put get more of your uh, tickets in the hat to be able to take home some of this just awesome gear. Um, the other two ways, you'll have to come to the seminar to find out about. And that's really what we want. We want to make this the biggest and the best seminar events that we've ever done. And, and we hope that you'll help us pack the room for our seminar Friday night at 5.30 in room 150G and Saturday morning at 10 a.m. also in room 150G. Again, attend the seminar. We'll give out more details there, um, but you won't want to miss this. Also, we have a booth on the floor, booth number 3553. That's really easy to remember, but write it down, put it in your phone, whatever, booth 3553, um, and that'll be the Finding Backcountry booth, and we'll have some, some gear there, some shirts and t-shirts and stuff like that. We'll be running our podcast. Don't be afraid to come up and say hi, shake our hands. Obviously, this is what we love to do. We love to talk about hunting and specifically backcountry hunting. If you've never been to the Hunt Expo, make this the year that you come. You're there supporting wildlife. Not only that, but you just get to talk hunting with other people who have the same passion as you. And then there's multiple seminars where you can learn and gather some information on gear and tactics and stuff like that. Plus, they have a really cool $5 raffle tags uh, where you can 
put your name in a hat for a chance to win some of the best, if not the best, hunts throughout the state of Utah. So again, Western Conservation and Hunting Expo, we're booth number 3553. Seminars are Friday at 5.30 p.m. and Saturday at 10 a.m. And that's at the Salt Palace Convention Center in downtown Salt Lake, February 8th through the 11th. You can find more information at huntexpo.com. We look forward to seeing you there. Now, let's get to the podcast. Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. So this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast episode number 16 with my man, Corey Beckendorf. And Corey, this is kind of the first uh, time that we've brought you on the podcast. Um, So just give the quick, uh, you know, two minute spiel on who you are and how we got hooked up. Cool. Um, Name's Corey Beckendorf. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, originally. And about six years ago, um, right when I was getting out of college, I made the choice to move out to Salt Lake City. Um, was incredibly fortunate to bump into a guy and got to work with a guy named Dustin Whitwer, um, who, you know, finally after just begging and pleading, let me come on a couple backcountry hunts with him. Uh, tried to lead me out in the backcountry once or twice, just all by my lonesome for a week. Um, and, you know, we've been best friends ever since. He, uh, Dustin's going to stand up my, in my wedding this June. Uh, we've been running all over the West. Uh, been trying to learn how to chase and kill elk and mule deer and whatever else will give us tag for. So, um, yeah, move was a, move was a godsend and Dustin and, Jason being put in my life was pretty awesome. So, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm a yeah, just fortunate to be a backcountry hunter, and I got the really the three best hunting buddies on the planet between you, your brother, and then you know Mark Smith. So, yeah, it uh, the Muley Slayer. I just kind of lucked into it. Just whitetail hunter from Iowa. So. Yeah, and you know, you you just touched on it, and our relationship literally was trial by fire in the backcountry. Um, you know, we we knew each other uh, through work, just as kind of coworkers. And I, I, to this day, I'm not sure why. You know, it, we just decided to go on a hunt together, but and I'm glad that we did. But um, because most of the time, from my experience, it doesn't work out that well when you just right end up deciding to go hunt with someone and you know you you don't no one vouched for you there was no you know oh I know I know him and he's I I can you know I can 
I can uh, vouch for his backcountry credentials or I can vouch for what type of guy he is. There, there was none of that. Uh, we just, we just drug you along because you wanted to go. No. And, and honestly, like, you know, and I think this is good advice for people who, um, you know, are listening that maybe there's some of you out there who want to get into backcountry hunting or are looking for people to backcountry hunt with. And, um, Corey was a good example because you could just see the passion in his eyes. Um, you, you could just tell by talking to him that, um, you know, he really wanted to do this and that's, you know, it, it's, it's easier said than done. Um, you know, a lot of people fake it, I think, but you know, Corey was just, he was not only that, but he was willing, you know, you, you know, you have a guy that's going to be a good hunting partner when he's just learning, but he's willing to come along and just do whatever, you know, whether it's pack out your bull or your buck or pack in your camp or help call or, you know, whatever the case was. And Corey's always been like that. So, um, no, happy, happy to, uh, happy to be hunting buddies. And yeah, I know how rare, uh, a good backcountry hunting buddy is. So, um, you know, not to get all broke back now here. Yeah. But, right. <laughs> um, Anyway, it's well, just, it, we've had a lot of fun in the last four or five, six years or whatever it's been. And, um, you know, you've learned a lot from me, but I've, I've learned a lot from you, um, particularly with things that I'm not really, uh, you know, really that savvy about one of them being, uh, you know, rifles and, and then muzzleloaders. And that's why we're on, you know, we, we, we're going to have you on the podcast. I'm sure a lot, a lot more in the as we go here, but, um, tonight, um, we're, we're recording this tonight. I don't know when you're listening to this, uh, listener, but, um, you know, the reason we're sitting down right now is to, to talk muzzleloaders and <clears throat> a little background. Not only is Corey, uh, we worked at the same place at a, a huge sporting goods store, but, um, Corey is what I would consider a gun fanatic. Um, in you know in what the last maybe five years you've really dove into it but it's it's also been something i know i've heard you talk about uh the history uh with your i, I think it's your uncle that was a gunsmith and maybe you can just touch on just real quick uh you know kind of the one minute version of of how you got into guns in in general uh and kind of what your passion for that is yeah absolutely so i have been a kind of gear junkie just in general my whole life and um i started working at a sporting goods store when i was 14 in a bike shop and i've kind of bounced all around that store um you know worked in bikes worked you know in the exercise department worked all over in the last six years i've been working once i turned 21 i've been working in uh the gun side um growing up in iowa my dad owned guns. We hunted, you know, my dad is really who like instilled like, you know, hunting for me. But my, my uncle on my mom's side was a gunsmith. And I don't like to use the word fanatic because it scares, you know, liberals. <laughs> so, um, I'm a gun enthusiast, I think is, uh, probably a better definition, but my, I kind of grew up going to gun shows with my uncle. Um, he had certainly, it's one of those deals. He passed away when I was 18, but he instilled a lot more of that. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know why, but I, uh, 
you know, I caught a little bit more of that bug than anybody else in my family, and I've been um, selling guns for a company named Shields. It's a pretty big sporting goods store kind of all over the Midwest. Um, we got a store here in Utah, and that's how I ended up in Utah, and that's how I met Dustin. Um, but I've been selling guns there for five years. Um, I've been buying and selling trading guns myself since I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. Um, I love archery hunting. Um, you know, when Dustin first started dragging me along on hunts, I knew nothing about the West, but we we're archery hunting. But I've always loved guns. I like hunting with guns. I've, I'll take a good tag with any weapon choice. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is pretty natural for me, I think, just because Dustin and I sit on the phone probably once a week for an hour yeah. at a time talking about whether it's tents or muzzleloaders or scopes or whatever and try to hash out how to kill an elk. So. Yeah, we've we've joked already um, about this podcast, but Corey and I were basically the reason that I started even doing this podcast, and apparently other people um, have some interest in it too because we have a few listeners. But um, we were having these conversations about hunting the backcountry in one category or another, literally once a week. Um, and At it was, least, yeah. It was just you know when I put it together, I'm like, well, I'd have to have a if I ran this podcast, I would have to have one, at least one conversation a week on average to release an episode a week about hunting the backcountry. And I'm like, man, I hope I can keep it to one, uh, one conversation a week, you know, <laughs> um, right. we, we were already doing it. And so I just had to hit record. Um, so this is, but we'll, we'll kind of try and keep it on, on course here. Um, talk, talk about, um, do, did you actually do, uh, muzzleloader hunts in Iowa or was it mostly slug uh, and archery or what? Um, I, I archery hunted a little bit, um, but most of what we do, so a little background on the state of Iowa. Um, this is the first year, so I say there's never been a rifle hunt. While I was hunting whitetail in Iowa, you were never allowed to rifle hunt there. Um, it was a management tactic. A lot of people get talking about why you know it was all flat and this, that, and other. It's truly a management tactic. With with the amount of cornfield, you pull all the corn out. It'd be really easy to clean out all the mature bucks in a year or two if you gave everybody rifles with the capacity of shooting five to eight hundred yards. So you had a bow season, you had two muzzleloader seasons, and two shotgun seasons. Um, if anybody's ever shot a shotgun with a slug in it, uh, they're wildly inaccurate. Um, and, you know, I've killed a lot of deer with a slug gun, but most of my mule deer I shot in Iowa were with a muzzleloader. White, now, they don't restrict... Whitetail, white right? You weren't shooting... Whitetail. <laughs> no you drew no the, mule deer. You drew that coveted mule deer tag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no mule... Somebody did shoot an elk in Iowa about two years ago. No kidding? over from Nebraska. Yeah, I had a weird brain tick or something. What, they did... Uh, what they... Uh, <laughs> what they claim they, they were packing a... They thought it was a white tail, or what? <laughs> How'd they get away no, with that? It, uh, you know, technically wasn't a. It's not a managed species in Iowa, so. so it's, is this uh, like a shooting DWI. coyotes or whatever? It, yeah, not even. There's more regulations around coyotes than there are shooting on <laughs> elk in Iowa. So my dad sent me the article and said, "Hey, you can move back now. There's elk in Iowa. We can hunt them." There so, was there was an elk in Iowa. There was, there yeah. was one elk in Iowa. So Another yeah, we were we were shooting whitetail. Um, because there was, you know, that was, the muzzleloader was the most accurate gun out there. You could just, you know, you had one shot. So they kind of left it wide open as far as optics go. They left it wide open as far as, um, 
you know, powder choices and sabots. Like pretty much if you could call it a muzzleloader, if you could stuff powder and a bullet down the bore, you could you could kill a deer with it. So um, you learn real quick to shoot deer at 250 yards with a muzzleloader um, just with a cheap gun and scope when you're 14. So yeah. otherwise you're not going to kill anything. Okay, so talk, um, start by talking about just the basic differences between muzzleloaders in general. Yeah, so we, a uh, couple different things. Um, most of what we're going to talk about today, because th- today's goal is to explain how to accurately hit a target at extended range. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, three to 500 yards. I think most people, um, are perfectly capable of shooting a muzzleloader ethically at 400 yards. I think the, you know, if you're willing to spend a little more time, money, energy, you know, five and six is doable. Five is very doable. Um, now that's assuming a couple things. A, we can shoot an inline muzzleloader. Um, you know, if you you guys up in Idaho, you might as well turn this off and just go watch the Patriot because you're going to learn more about shooting the muzzleloaders up there. Um, we're talking about inline muzzleloaders, um, or a modern muzzleloader, most of which are going to be shooting a 209 primer. Um, the last eight to 10 years, muzzleloaders have all gravitated towards a break action muzzleloader. Dustin shoots a CVA Acura. It's a perfect example of a good break action. Um, the bolt actions are actually coming back into style and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, there's you know, some ignition sources, you know, depending on what state, because every state regulates the muzzleloader differently. Um, most states you can shoot a 209 inline muzzleloader. I know Idaho you can't. I think Oregon, um, I don't think you can up there either, um, which is, you know, it makes it harder to shoot accurately. But here in Utah, shooting a 400 yard now that they've opened up the rifle scope to whatever you want. Shooting 400 yards is perfectly ethical um, if you put the same time and energy that you do into your rifle. So that's kind of the goal of the topic today is a couple tips and tricks that we've dealt with over the years to be able to stretch that range and be able to be more accurate and take a more humane shot. So talk talk ratio or, or relativity of ranges for, you know, say what is what is a 400-yard um, because that, that's a stretch even for guys with a rifle. What, so what would a 400-yard uh, muzzleloader shot equal ballpark with a, you know, a, whatever, an average hunting rifle setup? I, I would say cut it in half. So if, if you're a guy who's willing to put the time and effort into trying to learn to shoot accurate at 800 or 1,000 yards with a rifle, um, and I'm not saying hunting at that range, but if you can go out and you're comfortable and you know – you know, you can look at velocities, you can hop on Hornady's website, and you understand ballistic coefficient and those things and can shoot and hit steel consistently at 800 or 1,000 yards, you can certainly do it at 400 with a muzzleloader. Um, we apply the same principles. We're just shooting a slower, heavier bullet. Um, there's a little bit more inconsistencies in the velocity. Um, but I, I'd say cut it in half. 800-yard targets aren't, aren't super tough. If you're hunting at 600 yards, which a lot of the guys in the West are with a OT6 or a 7 mag or, you know, whatever the caliber of your choice is, three to 400, you know, it's, it's doable. 300 is, 
you know, 300 yards is probably like taking a 500-yard shot, and I'd say 400 is more in that, like, six or seven, eight range. Do you know, do you remember off the top of your head which states? I know, obviously, Nevada um, is open site. Um, Colorado. Colorado is open site as well, for sure. Yeah, and we'll we'll go over some things that will help those states as well. Um, but I'm lucky to make an iron sight shot at 100 yards with a rifle, much yeah. less. Uh, it, it really um, is know. all about that optic. Yeah, and that, that optic makes just a huge difference. Um, and so, you know, 150 yards with the right setup um, in those states is very doable. I know guys that are doing 200, you know, you're throwing a peep and you're really putting the time and effort in. Certainly doable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, taking that optic off in Colorado and it's almost Nevada like, almost like dividing in four, I guess. Yeah. And we're going to, we can't shoot a Sabbath and we'll get into bullets, you know, down the road here, but not shooting a Sabbath's going to, you know, that's going to hurt us just a little bit as well. So, so talk, talk about, we touched on ignition systems, talk about, uh, barrel lengths in general that a guy is going to look for just to extend his range with a muzzleloader. Yep. So. Most barrels, you'll, I'll say the average is probably 26 inches, um, and that's perfectly capable of hitting that 400-yard target. You're, we're talking 50 cal bores. Um, twist rates are almost always going to be a 1 in 28 for kind of your standard average guns. If we go down to a 45 cal, they'll speed them up a little bit. Um, that's probably outside the realm of what we'll talk about today. There's there's some things we can do, especially in the Midwest with smokeless powders and 45 cal bores. Your average guy, I really like to see in that 50 cal bore shooting a sabbated slug with anywhere from a, a 25 inch barrel, which you, you bought the Acura mountain, mountain rifle, mountain right? Rifle. Yeah, so Dustin's got a 25 inch barrel. You will lose like, you know, compared to a 26 or 28 inch barrel, you might lose, you know, 50 to 75 to foot per second um but 25 inch barrels perfectly capable of it guys get all gung-ho about a 30 inch barrel and if you're shooting open sights i'm all for it um because sight plane's going to help but i think 26s will make it handle a little better um and you just don't need that extra 50 foot per second you might get out of two or four inches of barrel so, so to clarify you said one in 28 inch twist rate Yep, 1 in 28 is kind of your standard go-to. Um, Thompson Center is going to run that twist rate. Um, that All the Acuras and all your CVAs are going to be a 1 in 28-inch twist rate. So extremely more dr- drug out than, a obviously, a, ri- a hunting rifle. Uh, yeah, we're pushing heavy, heavy bullets um, and big fatties. So Just takes um, – t- just – Using that longer twist rate to uh, get that thing spinning. Yeah, so, I mean, if you're shooting a 26-inch barrel or 25-inch barrel, you're not even getting a full rotation out of your bore hmm. or one whole twist, you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, But that's more than enough to stabilize those bullets with the Sabbath. And, um, you know, that's kind of the going, right? You're seeing some companies start to look at the one in 20s, but you really don't need to until you go to the 45 cal bullet. Okay. So. All right. Um, talk about maybe the most important aspect of this. Uh, talk about optics. Um, see a lot of guys out west um, when we start talking muzzleloaders and we start talking optics. Um, 
the draw muzzle order tag, whether it's, you know, a hard tag to draw or like that's just their deer hunt that year. That guy's willing to spend 500 or a thousand or whatever he's spending on his rifle optic and he's not ready to shoot anything nicer than a $200 scope on his muzzle loader. And I, I, I truly think it's crazy. Um, I think it's as important, if not more important on a muzzle loader, um, that we put a nice scope on it or, you know, the old rule of thumb, the best you can afford. Um, if 200 is all you got, slap one on there and that's, that's fine. But, um, your glass quality is super important. One thing to consider is that bullet is dropping super quickly. Um, we're using, you know, 16 to 20 MOA for long range guys at four or 500 yards, um, depending on your velocities, depending on, um, your bullet choice. And so we want to put a good optic on it. Um, and I, I wouldn't be afraid to put as nice as if that's your hunt this year, put, you know, rip, the, rip your good scope off your rifle and put it on that muzzle loader. The guns are perfectly capable of shooting one inch groups at a hundred, even, you know, I keep on bringing up the Acura because that's what Dustin shoots. Um, that gun with a good optic and, you know, all the stuff we need for a rifle, it'll shoot inch, inch and a half all day long. Um, if you've got the heavy optic on it. Yeah, they're heavy recoiling, so we need a durable optic. If you don't put something that's going to hold up on it, then you're going to be chasing your tail. So, so does, optic quality. Does it oh, need to be a muzzleloader, like quote-unquote muzzleloader specific rifle scope, or does it just need to be a quality scope? I, I hinge more on the quality. There are a lot of companies um, that are marketing scopes specifically for muzzleloaders, yeah. and you look at a company like Leopold, and I've shot Leopolds all my life. They uh, they do the ultimate slam. It's a VX2. They charge you an extra like 50 bucks for because it's got a Sabbat specific reticle um, that's supposed to be able to dial, you know, perfectly to a Sabbat. But anybody who shoots long range knows, like, as bullet choice and elevation, all your other variables change. Um, so is that reticle. So I don't get hung up on that. I think it's important to have a drop compensating reticle, but we can buy any rifle scope and put it right on a muzzle loader and do all the same math that we're going to do. We're going to use our velocity or ballistic coefficient um, and our bullet weight and figure out our bullet drop. And the better, the better dope we put in and the more accurate a rifle is, the better results we're going to get. And so I don't get hung up on a muzzleloader scope. I probably never have and never will because most companies don't build anything nicer than a $300 muzzleloader scope. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to put a nicer scope on that whenever I have the option to. So do you would you prefer a built-in reticle or a turret system for something like this? Um, it's a good question. I think that comes down to how guys like to hunt. Um, I, I really, really like the built-in reticle, um, for hunting just in general. Main reason being is I'm the guy that's going to turn the turret to 400 yards, not shoot at a deer, walk up, you know, and have a deer at 150 and sling one over his back. Um, if you're a guy who uses a turret in field, just know that you need a turret that's going to run, you know, 20 MOA if you want to start stretching that four or 500 yard range because that bullet, you know, it's got a, it, those bullets drop. They're not going very fast. They're not holding their speed very well. 
And so, and so for, I, for, for the guy like me that really didn't understand that before the scopes will, the, the scope doesn't obviously, you know, it's, it's obvious, but the scope doesn't have a, an unlimited amount of, <clears throat> uh, hors or vertical adjustment, right? Yep, absolutely. So your rifle scope, so take Dustin Swarovski, for instance, um, he's got 13 and a half minutes in his turret. And that, that's something we can research online when we're looking at scopes. 13 and a half minutes will get his 280 Ackley out to 600 to 650 yards. It's only going to get your muzzle loader out to 350. And so, um, you know, if we want to stretch it to five and you want to use a turret, then that Swarovski's probably not the right turret. You know, that's that's probably not the right scope. So. And so that that to me, because obviously that Swarovski that I've got, it's a Z, <clears throat> it's a Z3 um, Swarovski, clearly not a cheap scope. So the 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 amount of uh, MOA in a scope is not necessarily the price as much as as it is the the model or or the specs of the of the specific scope is that right absolutely yeah so we start looking at scopes and it, just because you're paying more for a scope doesn't always mean it's going to have the features you want and, okay. um i could i could probably spend an extra hour on this section yeah. as far we'll, as we'll optics do, go but, we'll do optics next time <laughs> yeah absolutely just know that you know it's a it's a juggling you know that's why you can pay three grand to try to get long range features glass quality lightweight you know when we try to raise all those up all the way to the top that's how you get a three thousand dollar scope yeah so you can buy a thousand dollar long range scope or you can buy the thousand dollar swarovski which from for a 280 athlete from zero to 600 it's the best tool for the job right but you're never going to turn that turret to a thousand yards on on any caliber yeah um, so that's uh, so that that's perfect so now guys understand that you know they they can't just go buy any scope and they can't just buy an expensive scope. They need to buy the right scope for the right application. Yep. Um, anything else you want to touch on on optics? Um, yeah, real quick. Um, mounting it up properly is very important. These guns put a lot of energy into optics. So using good rings, good bases. I'm big on using torque wrenches when we mount a scope but i rarely use loctite except for my really really like even on my seven mag i don't use loctite i think it's an old school thing we have torque screws now on all of our hardware you just don't need it on muzzle loaders i do so i am putting loctite on i'm making sure it's a good solid setup because you go your shoulder's gonna know it when you're shooting 20 rounds and your glass is gonna know it as well so yeah. making sure that it's mounted properly making sure we're using loctite um is pretty important on the muzzle loader so perfect good buy buy a good rifle you know a good muzzle loader excuse me four or five hundred bucks put put the best optic you can on it the best optic for the job um and mount it up properly don't skimp on rings don't don't spend twelve hundred dollars on your setup and put thirty dollar rings on it because it's just not going to work. So but. okay, perfect. Um, <clears throat> so we've got the we've got a rifle figured out. We've got the optic. Um, talk about the bullet. Okay, so um, three things we're going to need when we load a muzzleloader. Um, I'll I'll start. We get a lot of questions out west on muzzleloaders because 
guys, you know, in Utah, and I, you have a lot of Utah listeners, don't you? Yeah, most, actually. Yeah, yeah. so Dustin and I both hunt Utah. I live in Utah. Um, we do the dedicated hunter, so you get an archery guy who wants to rifle hunt as well, and you get this extra week of muzzle loading. There's just a lot of newer with the scopes coming out, a lot of new muzzle loaders in Utah. Do you, do you feel that way, that there's just a lot of guys that are just getting into it? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's kind of similar to how archery uh, was or is. You know, it, it's it's almost like the afterthought. It's like, well, right. you know, I'm really here for the rifle tag, but I I have the muzzleloader option, so I might as well, you know. Not going to skip a week of hunting. Not going to skip a week right. of hunting, so I might as well throw right. something together right. and go, go hike around yeah. the hills or whatever. <clears throat> yeah, and back home, because that's the most accurate weapon, there's a lot of guys that are, you know, they're muzzleloader guys, just like you have, you know, I'm a rifle guy. So um, it seems like we have a lot of new muzzleloader guys, and it's super, super intimidating um, because there's, it's not like just throw a 300 wind mag shell in and shoot it and sight it in, and, right. you know, we're good to go. Muzzleloading is not scary. It's not intimidating. Um, it's, it's really, really simple to do. You, you need three components to shoot it. You need a powder, primer, and projectile. So we're going to start with projectile here. Um, my opinion, you know, take it for what it's worth. I, uh, with a 50-cal muzzleloader, which is 95% of guns on the market, I really like to shoot a Sabbat if your state allows it. Um, I know Nevada, or, well, I don't know. Nevada doesn't allow Sabbats, do they? I don't think so. That being said, I yeah. should have researched that before we got on, but it's been years yeah. since I've had a Nevada muzzleloader tag. Your brother and I had that conversation. I'm pretty sure that you can't shoot a Sabbath yeah, in think Colorado or Nevada. I think you're right. Um, when that when the option is available, I'm always going to shoot a Sabbath. You're shooting a 45 cal slug. We're trying to stretch that range. If I'm trying to shoot a 275 grain slug, um, if I can make that slug skinnier, it's going to fly better downrange. It's going to speed better. Explain, explain Sabbat for those who may not know. Okay. So it's, everybody in America calls it a Sabbat, but I think it's a French term. Um, and it, it's Sabo. And so I'm, I don't want the, you know, Sabo, Sabbat, call it whatever you want. It's, it's basically a, it's a piece of plastic that's going to go, over the top of your muzzleloader um, bullet, and so we're going to shoot well, typically a over point. the over the back and around around the uh, the bottom half. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so the issue we're going to run into with a muzzleloader, if you take a 300 wind mag and we were just to pull the projectile out of the case, you'd have to be like um, you have to be like Cam Haynes to run that bullet down the bore, like it it like it's it's such a tight fit to the bore in a 308 or a 300 wind mag or 270 something normally fired by a case, you could never do it. And so we, we obviously, we need to be able to load the bullet into the gun on a muzzleloader from the front end. And so a lot more um, wiggle room. Yeah. A lot more wiggle room. So there's two ways we can do it. We can put what's called a belt on it, like a power belt or what I, I prefer the harvester, um, saber tooth and what we're going to shoot in Colorado and Nevada, it's got a belt. And what we need to do, because I can't make that bullet fit so close to the lands and grooves on the bore. Um, I need what's called a gas check on it, or it's, it's basically, I need a way for the powder and all the pressure behind the bullet 
to stay behind the bullet. I don't want it leaking over the side. And so behind the bullet, we're going to put a piece of plastic that's going to come up and over, and that's what's going to allow that bullet to twist as it goes down the bore. But because it's plastic, I can still slide it down the bore fairly easily. Um, and that's, that's going to keep our pressures high so we can get, you know, 2,000 foot per second out of the bullet. Um, keeps all the bullet behind it, but allows us to load it from the muzzle because it is a muzzle loader. So I, I do prefer a Sabbath. Um, you know, everybody's kind of got their opinion on it, but I think you look at any of the big companies who are, you know, shooting muzzle loaders 800 yards or 1,000 yards, they're all shooting sabbated bullets. Right. Um, I think it's the most accurate way and definitely downrange, um, carrying energy and speed downrange, a longer, narrower bullet's always better. So if we can, and it, with a Sabbath, we're going to shoot a .451 or .452 diameter bullet with that plastic to make up the difference between the bore diameter and that bullet. So you get an extra 50 thou um, out of the plastic. And it, I, I think that's the most accurate way. I shoot Parkers. I think that... Uh, that ballistic extreme for the money is a in a 275 grain. I I try when you when we when we're trying to stretch past that like standard 200 yard shot out to say a four. Um, I need to start doing the math. One of the things long range guys do is we look at um, the ballistic coefficient of a bullet. And most companies, Nosler and Hornady, they're going to have a printed ballistic coefficient. And be, most muzzleloader companies don't have it. And Parker is one of them that has um, data as far as the BC goes, as well as Harvester. And so they're two of the better bullets anyway. They give you ballistic coefficients, and then all we need is the speed and the weight, and we're in business. So so I, I cut you off earlier, just talk, uh, finish up about the, you know, uh, s smaller uh, elongated bullet and how that affects yeah. flight accuracy. Yeah, so when we... When we shoot that Sabbath, we get the, the advantage of it in a state that it's legal is um, if we have a 300-grain bullet that's 50 cal and a 300-grain bullet that is 45 cal, then one's going to be longer and skinnier, right? And so that's going to improve the ballistic coefficient as long as all else held is true. And so that's one of the reasons you want to shoot a Sabbath is, and there's even guys that are going to shoot a 40 cal with a Sabbath on it is, if I can make a longer and skinnier bullet at the same weight, I'm always going to. And because it's going to improve the BC, when you improve the BC, it's going to hold its speed better. Um, when it's flying in the air, if it holds its speed better, it's going to hit an animal downrange harder. So, um, <clears throat> And what, uh, I know you said two, 275 grains. I mean, there's a pretty good range there of uh, weight grains of bullets. What... Uh, I mean, what, what should a guy, a long-range guy specifically look for there? It's a balance. Uh, Dustin and I, I think, could do uh, about 10 podcasts if you, uh, if you added up all the times we sat down and argued or talked about weight versus knockdown power versus velocity. Um, there's, a, there's a happy medium for everybody. Um, general consensus. Um, from a lot of like the diehard shooters, your heavier bullets are always going to have more knockdown power. If I put X amount of energy and it, it goes for arrows, it's going to go for whatever. 
um, a heavier bullet's going to have more downrange knockdown energy. Um, there's a point of diminishing returns with that. Um, the 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 negative side of that is I can't push a heavy bullet as fast as I can push a lighter bullet. And so our trajectory at certain ranges don't do as well. And so if I'm trying to shoot, say, a moose, I need the heaviest thing I can I can get, right, because right. it's a big critter. Um, but I'm, if I'm shooting a deer, some of that weight, you know, taking some weight off and getting that velocity back and improving um, my trajectory, shrinking my margins of error, that's a pro. So. That's an act when we shrink margins of error. That's an accuracy benefit, and so 275 for me is a happy medium. If I'm going on an elk hunt, I might bump up to 300 or 325. Um, Basic rule of thumb is understand what distance you're trying to shoot at, though. Correct, and related to what size of game you're hunting, um, and then do some basic math or understand uh, how many foot pounds of energy a specific weight bullet is going to push going a specific speed and know that you have the knockdown power at that distance. I mean, is that, that kind of a rule of thumb for guys choosing a bullet weight at, you know, starting, starting perfect. That goes for a 300 wind mag, a muzzleloader, an arrow, any of the above. Um, and yeah, I, you know, 270, when we look and we'll, we'll move on to powder here in a second, but when we look at like printed data online or general rules of thumb that companies are giving us with a 26 inch barrel, a 275 harvester bullet or 275 Parker bullet, Blackhorn 209 prints it at like 2075 or 2065 foot per second. And so that, that to me is kind of a, you know, that's a happy medium. Um, we're getting some speed, we're getting some weight and you can look at those and apply that to how you want to hunt. And if you, you know, if you know, you're, you know, if you're up in Oregon or Washington and you've got those big elk up there, cause they're, they're big, bigger body elk, mm-hmm. um, you know, that losing some velocity, it's probably worth it to get a 300 or a 325 grain bullet. So. Yeah. Perfect. Um, talked about powder. You've mentioned Blackhorn 209. I know that that's, um, your preferred powder. Um, maybe talk, talk about why and what the alternatives are. So I, uh, you know, when we start looking at muzzleloader brands, I'd sit down and I'd, I'd try to be unbiased and say, you know, this is the cheapest. This is the best. In my opinion, here's everything in between pros and cons. Um, I, I try to stay unbiased about optics. You know, I like Swarovski, but Leopold makes good scopes too, and so does Nightforce and, you know, everything. There's one thing you get out of this podcast. Blackhorn 209 is the it's the best. It, it just, there's there's nothing else to shoot. Um, very efficient powder. It's a very, very clean burning powder. If you've shot 777 Pyrodex, um, any of the black powder substitutes, if you can switch over to Blackhorn 209, um, without a doubt, do it. It, it. It's just, it's one of those few products in our industry because we have a lot of options. You know, when we start looking at bows, when we look at tents, we have a lot of options, and there's a lot of good options. Um, Blackhorn 209 is better than everything else. It's cleaner. It's more efficient. It's more accurate. It's more. It, it just, it's awesome. 
So, so now it, it's a loose powder, uh, similar to, you know, a reloading powder for a rifle um, cartridge. Talk, yep. talk about um, the differences or why that would be more accurate than, say, a pre-measured uh, pellet. Okay. So one of the big negatives, and I, you know, they're negative to everything, is that they don't make a pellet form. And with most muzzleloaders, you have an option with 777s, Pyrodex, White Hots. Um, you have a pre-weighed out pellet option. So most muzzleloaders uh, are going to be rated to 150 grains of Pyrodex. Well, if I have three pre-weighed out pellets at 50 grains, I can just drop those down the board. It's really easy. Um, and that's, I think, an optional. I grew up doing, I, I did that for at least 10 or 12 years. The whole time I was hunting Iowa, I hunted with a pre-weighed out pellets. Killed my first whitetail when I was 12 with it. And it's it's a good option. It's just not the best option. And I, I'm a, I'm a true believer in when you weigh out or when you, when you scale a loose powder, it's going to be more consistent. Um, there's a lot of people that believe that it's, it's just a, it's a better way to get a consistent velocity. Uh, you get a more consistent burn out of a loose powder. Um, because basically, and, you know, and, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm not the expert here, but with those pellets, if you've got three pellets stacked on top of each other, the first one has to ignite, it burns through, and then has to reignite the second one, which burns through, which has to reignite the third one, which burns through, right? I mean... Yep, and they, they've got a hole down the middle, so it can kind of help with that just a little bit. Um, that's certainly one of the issues is that there's a break in the pellets. Um, one of the other issues is, is we have to we have to put something in that powder to get it to hold together and uh that creates whatever that like i'll call it glue for lack of a better term to hold that pellet together it creates some inaccuracies and more importantly it, it fouls your gun more and so one of the big drawbacks of muzzle loading is you know black powder is extremely corrosive it's extremely dirty black powder substitutes are a big step forward but Smokeless powder is the best. Like I, you know, the Whitworth brothers have never cleaned a rifle in their lives, you know, and all their rifles shoot great. So it, uh, you know, and that's because it's a smokeless powder. You don't get away with that with a Pyrodex or a black powder gun. So it. Uh, I've cleaned a rifle. No, you haven't. <laughs> I've never seen it. It's not uh, my. Your brother. It's not my favorite. Your, thing. Yeah, your brother's pretty. Your brother's better about it, but you you can get away with it because smokeless powders aren't corrosive. When you when you start talking about Pyrodex, you got to clean your guns. That's why muzzleloaders, most muzzleloaders are stainless, and that's what we want is a stainless muzzleloader, is because it just it it just wants to erode your gun. And so when we switch over to Blackhorn, it's much cleaner that way. Um, some of that is because there's no glue binding that loose powder. Now we can shoot a loose powder Pyrodex, which I think is more consistent than the pellet form. Um, but whatever formula Blackhorn, I'm not, you know, we're not on Blackhorn's pro staff. I'm not, uh, I, I walk into the sporting goods store and buy it just like everybody else. It's the best stuff out there. It is so much cleaner. And if you've been shooting Pyrodex all your life and you go shoot 
um, when I was shooting Pyrodex, I was cleaning my gun every three to five shots. Is that kind of where you were at with your CVA, Dustin? I thought with Pyrodex, I thought you cleaned after every shot, honestly. There's, you know, it's like a pot of chili. Everybody does it a little bit differently. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of guys would run a swab after every one to try to keep, like, the consistency there of how much fouling there is in the bore. Um, it would gum up. I, I don't remember exactly what pellet I was using, but it would gum up so bad that I, I couldn't push the, the bullet down the barrel, you know, after two or yeah. three shots. And so that it just became an issue. Like it wasn't that I didn't want to, it was that I had to clean it after every shot to be able to fire it again. Yep, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's pretty commonplace with the pirate X. And I, I grew up my, my dad and my grandpa, the way they taught me to do it, we shot 150 grains, three pellets, um, and we cleaned every third shot. So um, with Blackhorn 209, I'm going to the range, and I'm shooting 40 shots, and I'm not running a swab down my bore. Right. You know, and so that's that's the difference. And because I'm not so rapidly fouling my gun, you get better consistency too. After that, you know, I have got a super clean bore, it's only each shot is only minutely more dirty where when you go from shot number two to shot number five with a regular muzzle loader, a Pyrodex Blackhorn or a black powder substitute, you're, you know, the fouling would be like shooting 500 rounds of 280 Ackley through your gun between each shot. So um, that's one of the huge benefits of that powder is that, that velocity consistently, consistency because your fouling just isn't getting that much worse every time i i go to the range i shoot 40 shots and i come home and i clean my gun so it uh it's awesome i i'm i'm all about it so we've got a loose powder though um and we've got to get that measured out somehow um i know there's two two main uh, differences uh talk about those and what they are and what the advantages of of each are okay when we uh, when we start talking muzzle loaders, your standard muzzle loader that's anywhere from two hundred and fifty to thousand dollars on the shelf, or even price six or seven hundred bucks, um, is rated to one hundred and fifty grains of Pyrodex by volume, or they call it by volume equivalent. Um, and there, it's kind of a muddy water because nobody's out there like really explaining it. You got to really dig online to figure it all out, but. So that's three pellets by most guys' um, terms. Um, or, you know, when we when we weigh out, you know, you see Daniel Boone, he, you know, he takes that powder horn and rips it open with his teeth and just dumps mm-hmm. it down, you know, ever so much. When, we're, when we have our measuring tool, most of the time we're measuring it, we're dumping it in and it, there's a scale or a, you know, it's a, like a cylinder and we're looking at the side. And so we're measuring it by volume. We're not, we don't have like a weighted scale out in the field. So they call it a volume equivalent. And so most muzzle loaders are 150 grains of Pyrex volume equivalent. Um, when we, when we reload, you, your family's been reloading. Have you ever reloaded by volume <laughs> in your life? Nope. Always rifles. Nope. Yeah. And it, every single rifle manufacturer loads by weight and you are you can get much more consistent powder charges if we measure it by weight rather than volume um but nobody's going to carry a scale out in the field right and so 
um, what we're going to do is we're going to pre-weigh that. And this is, and I'm going to try to explain this to the, my best of my abilities because it, get, it gets kind of, it's a lot of numbers at once. But a gun that's rated to 150 volume equivalent can only shoot 120 grains volume equivalent of blackhorn. And so we're pre-measuring that out um, just like we would 150 grains of Pyrodex. Um, but it's a, it's a hotter powder, so you can't put as much in there. But you're going to get better velocities with 120 grains volume Blackhorn than you would 150 Pyrodex. So rather than doing volume, because we already said that's not the most consistent way to do it, we're going to do it by weight. But volume equivalent and weight are not the same thing. And so Blackhorn... Blackhorn right on their website has load data for muzzle loaders and that max charge of 120 grains comes out to 84 weighted grains. So if you're a reloader, you have a reloading scale, you can use that scale to measure out 84 weighted grains. And just know you should never see more than 84 grains on your reloading scale when you're doing it because I don't want you to put 120 weighted grains on that scale and blow your gun up. Yeah, say so, say all, like reiterate that because I know that that's a big key and, and very important here um, yep. with if, guys if weigh, we're, weighing out their powder. Yeah, if we're going, and I, I, I recommend guys weigh out their powder. You're going to get a more consistent velocity, and we need the more consistent velocity to hit those downrange targets. And so weighing out Blackhorn 209 is the best thing. And if you have a standard muzzleloader rated to 150 grains of Pyrodex, um, you never want to see more than 84 weighted grains of Blackhorn on your reloading scale. Um, it's It's just... You, that is the max charge that's the most you're supposed to put in there. Um, there's some guns that are rated to higher than 150 grains. Um, Blackhorn has yet to issue any load data. Um, therefore, I'm not going to recommend you go over that 84 grains. I Here in Utah, at the higher velocity and the, the way the air works, I'm getting, with a 275-grain bullet, I'm getting over 2,100 foot per second with an 84-grain charge. And I actually... I'm running 80 grains in mine. I'm really, really happy with how my gun shoots with a 275 grain bullet, 80 weighted grains. I don't like recoil. That 84 max charge, it's going to push you around a little bit. But yeah, you just if if you got a reloading scale, and I recommend if you're not a reloader and you want to shoot your muzzle loader accurately, go buy one. Don't ever put more than 84 grains on there how, how many have you counted how many times i've said that yet and probably not enough because someone okay. out there someone out <laughs> yeah. there is out there right now taking notes and they wrote 120 down and they're going to go yeah. way out 120 grains and blow their gun up so 84 grains weighted is your max charge um, <laughs> the way you figure it out if you want to the equivalent is you take your volumetric times 0.7 now this is only for blackhorn um, but you take your volumetric equivalent, which would be 120 grain max charge volumetric, and you multiply it by 0.7, um, and you get 84 grains. So if you want to shoot a 100 grain charge, you'd be shooting 70 weighted grains. Perfect. Um, that's all on Blackhorn's website. Um, two other things we need to pay attention to when we're switching over to Blackhorn, actually three. Um, we can't be running a muzzleloader primer your Remington or your 777 Winchesters, um, they're not hot enough to ignite that 
Blackhorn 209. And so we're going to want to switch over to a Winchester or a CCI shot shell. Um, we just we need more heat to light that consistency. And right on the back of your Blackhorn, it'll it'll explain what breech plugs it'll work with, and it'll explain what primers it'll work with. I recommend you read it. Um, hop on there. They've got good load data right on Blackhorn's website. Um, and I, I'd, I'd strongly recommend you know going and checking that out. But we and then the third thing we need to pay attention to is how we clean our muzzle loader. Um, and it because we can't use a standard muzzle loader solvent. Um, do we do, do you think we covered powder good enough? Yes. Or can yeah, we, I think we we're good. move over over to cleaning? Yep. Okay. So, um, we'll go back to loading here in a sec. But when we when we clean our muzzle loader, because we switched over to Blackhorn, we have to run a just different recipe for cleaning. And you can actually run the same stuff you're using in your gun. Traditionally, when we use a Pyrodex, um, one of the worries because our powder is right next to our bore, when you clean your 300 wind mag, that if you leave a bunch of extra solvent in your bore, it's not ever going to touch your powder um, because your powder is inside your brass. But when we do that with a muzzle loader, you run the potential of rendering your primer or your powder inert and so then the gun's not going to go off or you're going to get a hang fire which is you know scary and dangerous and so there's always been muzzle loader specific cleaners for that reason and we always want to clean it and get it as dry as possible um, but we're going to switch over to a regular solvent blackhorn 209 actually makes a great solvent and the difference between the blackhorn and what like a hops number nine or whatever whatever your rifle choice is, is the Blackhorn is going to help with plastic fouling. And so because we have a sabot traveling down the bore, um, your bullet never touches your bore, just plastic does. Well, plastic's going to leave residue because it's melting on the way through and creating friction. So now Blackhorn 209 solvent's great. That's what I use. Um, if you're running Blackhorn, that stuff's like 10 bucks. You're going to use one bottle like every five years. So I would, I'd strongly recommend in that you can still use a regular rifle powder and lubricant. Always keep it as dry as possible. Once you're done, run, you know, maybe an extra two or three dry patches because we don't want to get that powder wet. So, um, you know, keeping it clean is important. With the Blackhorn, I've already mentioned, you don't need to clean it near as often. I clean my gun. I put it in the safe when I go out to shoot. I pop a primer through it to foul the board just a little bit. And that, if you put a primer through it before you load it, it's going to burn out any of the extra lubricant or solvent that you've got in there, right. um, which is a big deal. It won't, uh, and then it'll foul the board just a little bit so you get that more consistency to it. Perfect. Let's see. Anything else on cleaning? I feel like I zipped through that maybe a little quicker than. No, I mean uh, the basics still apply. You know that you would use yep. on the on the outside of the rifle with any with any rifle. So <clears throat> I don't think yep. we need to. Uh, we don't need to dive into that too much. Um, uh, talk briefly about. Uh, did you did you meant talk about loading? No, 
I think uh, I think I segue right past that. So yeah, go through that. Um, so when I when I load my muzzle loader, um, primer goes in last because that's my ignition source. Um, we're gonna have the whole gun closed up. We're gonna load it from the muzzle because it's a lo muzzle loader. I uh, let me I guess let me back step first. Um, back to powder and weighing it out. Um, Blackhorn makes test tubes, plastic test tubes that are capped, they feel, you know, they're fairly waterproof, um, and they make them in 20 packs. And it allows you to, because we, we want to weigh it, and I've already mentioned that we're not going to carry a scale to the range or the field, so I'm going to take those test tubes, and I'm going to sit at my reloading bench, or sit at my table, and I'm going to pre-weigh each and every 80 grain charge. I'm going to dump those in there so when I go to the range, I can take a pack of 20 pre-weighed test tubes. And all I'm going to do, the first step of loading, is I'm going to take one of those test tubes, I'm going to dump it down the bore. Makes it super, super simple. Yeah. Um, I pack the same thing in the field when I'm hunting. And it's actually kind of crazy. I love looking at it because you know, I know I'm within a tenth of a grain on each of these and when you look at the volumetric difference they all look different you know it'll drive your if you're ocd it'll just drive you nuts yeah you've got but to you've no, got to ignore the you've oh got to, man. the volumetric measurements on the side because it like it just it, goes to show how off i think those can be yeah it'll make you go cross-eyed if you look at it so i wish they'd just take them off because if you try to measure with those they're just not yeah. even close to accurate and so that those so. are like you know like you said they're they're actually fairly rigid um plastic tubes and the the top actually snugs on pretty tight to where you don't feel like it's going to pop off as long as it's not in a pouch or a spot or a pocket that's going to get a lot of pressure um for me, I was running them on kind of the top, uh, outside top uh, zippered pouch of my 22 mag um, because there's really nothing that I, uh, you know, there's no straps to cinch down over that. Even when I, you know, if I strap something on the back or whatever, um, that doesn't take any pressure. You, you just want them, um, if you're really worried about it, I think we we're maybe running some duct tape or some uh, electrical tape or something around the caps, you know, other than maybe the one that we needed as a backup shot or something. Just, you know, th this is if you're hiking into the backcountry and you need to pack literally every every shot that you're going to need for the whole hunt with you, um, you know, all in your backpack. Otherwise, you know, pack whatever you need, two or three for the day, and then leave the rest at camp, so... Yeah, and I I like that, having kind of the backup in your pack and everything. I've been running mine, and I, I've kept them on the top. Like you say, we've got the same pack, that Kufaru 22 mag, um, and it's fairly easy to access. I've been keeping mine in my muzzle, or my Bino Bivy, um, you know, at least one charge, and it just makes everything pretty simple. And if, if any of the listeners, man, I uh, we have so many good options for gear right now out on the planet, and the those caps are pretty good. Um, but I spent a lot of money on my muzzleloader and I spent a lot of money on the scope for it. And I spent a lot of time and effort scouting and hunting my muzzleloader tag and all this stuff. And I do feel weird packing those plastic. I think you and your brother, you know, your brother do a, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a once in a lifetime deer tag and slam just an incredible deer on it. 
um, I think your brother felt the same way. Like, why are we packing around these plastic things? There's nothing. There's nothing better. There's... Yeah. So if if any of the listeners, if you know of anything better or like can design something, I'll be your first customer because yeah. like I would love for just like a rock solid you know yeah. system for that where it's easy to reload and everything. But the 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 tubes work pretty well. Um, yeah. I love them when I'm going out and testing and shooting my gun because I've got just like that nice container all full. I'll pack two of them right in my range bag. Right. Um, makes it awesome at the range. Go home, clean it. And I I always tell people like you, you have that extra step of, um, you know, you have to weigh out your stuff. But you can do that at home before you get to the range. So it's not any harder than pellets at the range. But I don't have to clean my gun at the range. Yeah. I can shoot those 20 or 40 shots or whatever in a third the time that a guy running Pyrodex pellets can because he's cleaning his gun every three to five shots. Yeah. And I'm just zipping through them. So it, uh, you know, the preform stuff's great, but it, uh, yeah, the, the pre-weighed out charges that Blackhorn has are, you know, worth their weight in gold as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, if somebody had like a nice brass sealed, I don't know. I need, Maybe maybe Aaron Snyder could come up with something. He's got some pretty nice stuff he's come yeah, up with. He seems like the guy that could innovate something yeah. like that. Yeah, those freaking Colorado guys don't care because they don't get scopes on their guns. So they're probably <laughs> they're probably pulling the Daniel Boone and just like ripping the using their teeth to do the powder <laughs> horn and it. Uh, yeah, so back to loading. Sorry for the rant there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take that pre-weighed out thing that I did on my reloading bench, dump it in. Um, and I'm always going to take a bullet starter and anymore, most of the bores, the lands and grooves end about three eighths to a half inch before the end of your bore to make so those bullets kind of sit down in there. I still think you need a bullet starter because you need, you need that bullet to be square in your gun and that bullet starter, you know, just a round ball with a short little rod on it to get it, you know, say six inches down your bore. It starts that bullet square in your gun and square in your sabot. Um, so I always I like to use a ball starter or a you know bullet starter right at the beginning, and then you're going to take your ramrod and um, I try to do a really even pressure. One of the things you know I see guys just like slamming it down because it's hard to load or whatever. Like you want it to be really really smooth, even pressure. Um, one mistake I see a lot of guys making is they don't have the um, the proper bullet starter on the end of the ramrod. You get sold a ramrod with these muzzle loaders, um, and then we buy a bullet with a ballistic tip on it. It's not a round ball. And all these companies selling these nice muzzle loaders that shoot great, they, they basically have ball ends for a round ball on it. Well, unless you're up in Idaho, you're not shooting those. And so you need to put the proper jag on there or bullet starter that's going to, you know, kind of be the, the female to the male point on the muzzleloader bullet. And it, uh, we don't want to damage our bullet as we're applying all that pressure running it down the bore. Right. Um, you need that on your bullet starter and you need that on your ramrod. And so um, I went through, I bought a spin jag. Um, it was kind of expensive, but it was, you know, good good product spin jag makes a muzzle loader rod that is like custom fit to your gun 
and has like the proper tools on it and stuff. I, I really, really enjoy it. And I think it's 50 or 60 bucks or something, but, um, you know, it's a good ramrod and it's got all the pieces and it's the correct length and everything to your gun. You order it and you tell them what gun and length and all that stuff. So, but make sure that we have that bullet starter be super smooth running that down. And then once we hit that powder and if, you know, my dad was always big on it with pellets because if you crunch those pellets, they, uh, they'll crack and stuff. And then, you you know, your accuracy just is out the door. And so, and the, the powder is kind of the same way that I need the same consistent pressure. It's real firm. You know, you wish you had like a torque wrench or a way to do it. But mm. the more consistent pressure we can apply as we that bullet hits the powder, um, the more consistent velocity, which is going to create more accuracy. Um, it, it's really, it's, it's for lack of a better term, it's just a feel, right? It's, it's, it is. It absolutely is. And it's, you know, and that's why, you know, I'm going to try to always load my own gun if I'm going deer hunting because I'm, you know, you, me, and Jason could all be really accurate with our own guns or the same gun loading it over and over but we might all you know have a little bit better different velocity because we're all going to have a different feel so consistency is key whether it's archery rifle reloading whatever same thing it's a feel thing with that and just you know nice and firm make you want to make sure you're on top of the powder um and that it's you know nice and sealed up so um and then lastly we're going to put our primer in there do you uh sorry on on your uh ramrod do you Mm -hmm. um make a mark on that you know maybe a a permanent marker so that you know the exact depth to hit on that every time yeah and it it seems like every time i'm out and like sighting it in or whatever i never have anything but like my knife on me so i've actually like it seems like every muscle loader i've ever bought over the years Mm -hmm. i've literally like put a notch in it yeah, but um, something just to gauge that yeah. uh, that's, visually. That's, that's a good point because one of the things we worry about is, like, let's say we have a week-long hunt or, you know, you're in and out of cabins or whatever you're doing. Um, you know, in the Midwest, it's a big deal because you get in and out of your tree stand every day. You don't want to double load your gun. You don't want to go <laughs> powder, bullet, and then next day, you know, not shoot it, powder, bullet, and now, you know, you got a pipe bomb in your hand. Yeah. So Unless you got one of those great... two two deer tags, you know that you're trying to yeah. shoot a yep. do- shoot a double. Otherwise, yeah. most of us out That's west, how... so we don't get that. So yeah, you don't get two deer tags unless you're an Idaho boy. But then you don't get the inline. So right. No, it. Uh, that's a good point. So when you're once you've got that consistent feel down, what Dustin means is you're going to have about three inches or two inches of your ramrod showing out your bore. Make a little mark there. Um, that's always an indicator, you know, if there was a big gap there for some reason and your gun had like an extra, you know, inch showing, that's an indicator that something's wrong and we probably need to pull the gun apart, take everything out and see what it is. Just a good little, um, check. Yeah. Maybe you did, maybe you threw and that, you know, fun fact, um, they've actually dug like rifles out of like battlefields from the civil war and stuff. And they, uh, those guys, you know, that, that was, you know, the worst fought war on the planet. It was, you know, it was awful for our country. Those guys would get in the heat of the moment 
and they would just start stuffing powder and bullet and powder and bullet. And they, they've literally found examples of Civil War rifles um, with like three or four charges in them. Really? Because, you know, the heat of the moment uh, happens. And it uh, that old black powder was so, it, it just wasn't all that hot. So it was pretty tough to blow those guns up with that powder. Um, but, yeah, they've, they've showed that. You know, that was back back in the day they had that issue so um but they didn't have podcasts then yeah (laughs) you know so problem solved uh, problem solved yeah they just needed podcasts so so we've built uh, we've built the perfect long-range muzzleloader setup we've gone through everything just briefly touch on how we're going to store this thing when we're not using it absolutely so i try and this is out of habit um clean it when you get home like just uh, drop everything you're doing you know gear maintenance is important i'm the first guy to like have a bloody pack with gear you know dustin just killed on day eight and i gotta go in the you know drive through the night and go straight to work i'm the guy that throws the pack in the garage and just leaves it for a week or two weeks or tells my girlfriend yells at me and uh these muzzle loaders even with blackhorn 209 are fairly corrosive um so i'm going to clean it clean the breech plug real real light coat of oil i'm probably just gonna run one wet patch through it dry patch um and then just leave it just like that so good stainless gun you're not going to have any issues if you store it clean um if you're shooting pyrodex and you leave it over the season your breech plug is going to be seized your barrel is going to be corroded and you're going to be buying a new gun so Actually, I'm a gun salesman, so actually, that's exactly how you store it. Yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> then go see Corey for a new one. Yeah, just just come buy a new muzzleloader every year. So <laughs> that, uh, yeah, just it, it's important. You could leave it for a day or two, but that even with Blackhorn 209, that residue wants to hold moisture. Now you're holding moisture next to your bore. Um, that's just a recipe for pitting out your bore, and that's not what you want especially if you've just spent all this time and money on a muzzleloader. So. Right. Perfect. Anything that you want to add or just that we need to touch on? Um, one thing, one recommendation I like to make for guys when you're going to sight them in my muzzleloader in, and when you're going to, you know, just put range time in, um, give yourself extra time to go shoot 40 or 50 rounds you're, even if you have pre-weighed powder or pellets or whatever, that's like a four-hour job to sit there and do it because you're, you know, you're sitting down, dumping powder in and putting a bullet through, and it, it, it's a, it's a time-consuming thing. I can go rip through 20 rounds at the rifle range pretty quick, but with a rifle, but with a muzzle loader, it's going to take more time. There's, you know, quite a bit of recoil to the gun, so you. Just know that it's going to take two or three times longer than what you would do with a rifle. Don't rush it. Another recommendation is you got to start earlier. Um, we see a ton of guys here in Utah. You have the archery hunt. You know, it's second week of August through second week of September. Uh, then you got a little two-week break, and then it's the muzzleloader. And the dedicated hunters, you hunt the the bow season, and you got that two-week break to set up your muzzleloader, and it. Because it is more time-consuming, um, 
you know, it, it might take you more trips to the range to figure it all out and to get it dialed in. Um, and don't expect to, you know, if you're a guy who can shoot five, 600 yards with a rifle, don't expect to just walk up your first time with a muzzle loader and shoot 400 yards with it. You are going to take more time. You're in charge. I know you're in charge of the just general muzzle loader sells <laughs> at Shills. When would you say the bulk of your selling season for muzzle, <laughs> for muzzle loader supplies is at Shills? When is the, the last, like the day before muzzle loading <laughs> season starts? I actually, I was at the range, uh, like just, just going and shooting. And I, I just had some time to kill right before the muzzle loader hunt, right before I, I came down to see you boys. And it, uh, man, there's like 20 guys at the local range. I'd never seen a muzzleloader at that range before, and there's like 20 of them there. Ramrods were going everywhere. and like it was that's, a, that's Team Ramrod out there at oh, that point. Team Car Ramrod. Oh, man, it was uh, it was brutal. The range master was just pulling out his hair. Don't it, be uh, Team Ramrod. Start, don't be Team Ramrod. Start in June no, or whenever. Have, yeah, be just just play by the rule be done with your muzzle loader and we're notorious for it it seems like we're always trying to throw our rifles together right before rifle season because we got so much other stuff going on get your muzzle loader done before scouting season because otherwise you're going to have that little two-week window and you're going to be licking your wounds from the archery season and it uh it just takes a little more time and it's stressful to um and, and i see it just because i sell muzzle loaders and i work with guys and, on it and it uh it's just going to be stressful for you if you uh, if you, if, you w- if you only give yourself a week to set it up and you've never shot a muzzleloader before. What's what's a you, good re- real quick because you're involved in that kind of that industry. What what's a good um, I don't want to say beginner or entry level, but what's just a what's a good affordable rain uh, muzzleloader you know that'll that'll accomplish what we're talking about. Man, I love the Acura series. You can get the CVA Acura Connecticut Valley Arms. Um, it's not the nicest muzzle loader on the market by any stretch. I think you can get into one now with the Bergara barrel for like 400 bucks. Um, pretty good trigger. It's a good design. Great barrel. Perfectly capable of taking that 400 plus yard shot if you put the time and effort in and put the optic on it. And then and what's... That's right. And then what, what's maybe your Cadillac? What's your, uh, you know, your top, top of the top choice? Well, I, I, I bought myself a Cooper a couple of years ago. Um, and I'll never, the year I got it, it killed the biggest deer that it will ever kill. And I'll, that, and I didn't get to pull the trigger on it. <laughs> hubba, hubba, hubba popped its cherry and it'll, uh, I'll, I'll never be able to, I bought the gun for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have to do buy another rifle. I, Cooper makes just a phenomenal muzzleloader, and I. Uh, Cooper's out of Montana, and they are most, I assume, most well known for their uh, like custom or what most guys would consider semi-custom rifles. Is that right? Yep, yep. They uh, they make a heck of a rifle. They came out with a muzzleloader a few years ago. Yeah. Um, mine's mine's been great. Jason killed his Utah buck with it a few years ago. I killed my deer with it this year. It, uh, yeah, it's been a great gun. Uh, fun fact, I bet you don't know about Muley Slayer. Um, he's got like primo, primo 
muzzle loader, carbon wrap barrel, the whole nine yards he had set up like six or eight years ago. Um, really? Forget the gunsmith who set it up for him. He told me all about it, and I'm like, yeah, you, you know. You said a, car- a carbon, like the- carbon barrel muzzle loader? <laughs> yeah, I've never even seen a carbon barrel muzzle loader. But yeah, he's got uh, he's got a Cadillac. I still like my Cooper. My Cooper shoots and handles awesome. Um, but yeah, Mark's Mark's got a I don't even know the name brand of it. I can't think of the gunsmith to put it together. I think it's a Christensen barrel. But yeah, he's got a uh, he's got a Cadillac that uh, and I I truly love and I always growing up Thompson Center was like it for me. Like when I was fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, that was I, the. Yep. Oh man, I wanted one so bad, and they, I truly those the CVA Acuras. I think if you put them on the bench side by side with a Thompson Center, that's two hundred bucks more. I think the CVAs will shoot just as good or darn close. Um, but the Thompson Centers handle better. They're the way they've designed their actions and their stocks. They recoil a little bit better because um, they they've got you know, recoil built into their stock or recoil dampening systems. Their actions are a little shorter, so you get a shorter overall gun with the same barrel length. Um, those Thompsons are nice guns, but my opinion is if you've got, say, $1,000 to spend on a gun, I'd rather spend four on the Acura and six on your scope setup than six on the Thompson and four on the scope. Right. So I'm, I, I like the optics. It's... Uh, it's it's important it's a it's a huge part of it especially because you're delivering so much energy into that scope that if you put a cheap scope on it those those muzzle loaders just like to rip them out so right. yeah tom thompson's and cvas are definitely top of my list um but yeah cooper i think is kind of the you know in my opinion the crim daily crim like i my my gun's awesome i love it yeah it uh i'll, I'll be buried with that thing so yeah, I picked that thing up. Uh, we were just flinging bullets uh, before, just as on a downtime during Jason's hunt that couple years ago or whenever it was. And uh, man, I I picked that thing up and I was I was hitting a, you know, a volleyball size rock at four hundred yards, uh, just no problem with that thing. And I'm I'm not that good of a shot, uh, so anyway, must be doing something right. So yeah. Okay, well, this is a this is a backcountry podcast, and so the reason that we would even talk about this is, um, you know, there's just if you're gonna go on muzzleloader hunts and you're gonna be in the backcountry, um, there's just times that you need to reach out and and touch something out, you know, further than 150 yards uh, or whatever, and and so here's hopefully a couple, you know tidbits or uh tips or tactics or whatever you want to call them uh, that'll allow guys to you know like you said i mean you know everyone's range we're not here to tell everyone what their range is we we you know we we broadly uh, vaguely described you know what long range is but um you know maybe it takes you 50 yards further 100 yards more accurate from from where you're at and that's good so um the, the key is the key is with the same with anything, um, you know, be a guy that, you know, is at the range enough to worry about having to clean your gun and, you know, be a, be a guy that's at the range enough, you know, that, uh, that, uh, puts in the time that that's accurate enough to shoot at these type of distances. We owe it to the, 
we owe it to ourselves and to the other hunters and, and most importantly to the game that we're hunting. Um, you know, whether it's archery or rifle or muzzleloader or, or whatever it is. So love it. Anything else, uh, anything else you want to add, Corey? Get out there and hunt with them. Yeah. I, I love muzzleloading. It, uh, it, it's a really fun sport if it's intimidated, you know, it, it's intimidating if you've never done it, if you don't have buddies that do it. Super simple. They're accurate guns. They, uh, anymore, these modern muzzleloaders are, you know, they're, they're way more accurate than guys give them credit for, and they're way more lethal. You get out, you practice with them, you put the time and effort into them that you would with a bow or a rifle. Um, it's a great way to hunt. You get great seasons. You know, they, they kind of give most rifle, general rifle hunts kind of the shaft as far as seasons go. And if you're willing to put the time and effort in, you can extend your range on your muzzleloader, get a little bit better season. If you're a guy like Dustin that doesn't like the cold, it's <laughs> really a little earlier, so it's a little warmer. Yes. And, uh, yeah, get out there and shoot them. So I know, um, just because I'm, I, I know you and we're good friends. Um, I can tell you right now, you can find Corey um, on social media, but honestly, the the quickest way to get a hold of Corey is just to get a hold of me at uh, finding. <laughs> it it really is at fi- yeah, uh, I'm awful. finding backcountry at gmail dot com or obviously on on social media. Um, you know, Corey's like one of my best friends. We've I've got him on speed dial. Um, so if you I will look at my social media and forward him a message faster than he'll look at his social media. So um, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, uh, anything, I know Corey and I know that he would love to, um, especially if you're if, if you're in the northern Utah area, um, we can get you hooked up. And, um, you know, you can go see him at his, at his job where he gets paid to do this kind of stuff. Um, or, you know, he's honestly the guy that'll meet you in the parking lot and BS with you about muzzleloaders if, you know, if you're so inclined. So, um, anyway, uh, so I, I know that's the best place probably to find him. Um, uh, but you are on social media at, uh, on Instagram, at least at enjoying the pursuit. Is that right? All one word. Yep. All one word there. Perfect. And then you'll be, uh, with us. Are you, are you coming up every single day of the hunt expo this year? Uh, Thursday, I'm questionable. Okay. Um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm a go on that. So, yeah. So, and, and for those that are in or around, you know, Northern Utah and, or planning to attend the Western hunt expo, um, I can never remember our booth number, uh, because it's really not that important, but the, the big thing, (laughs) um, we will be, uh, I say we, uh, the back, us backcountry guys, team backcountry guys. Um, we'll be at the Western Hunt Expo again this year. Um, me, Corey, uh, and my brother Jason. Um, the the most important thing to us, honestly, is our our seminars. Um, you know, they they're gracious enough and kind enough to let us go do a couple of seminars, and that that means more to us than than uh, you know buying our T-shirts or you know whatever. That that stuff is just not as important. Um, we, we love the interaction that we get at those, uh, seminars. It's a really good place to just, uh, talk hunting and get specific questions answered if you have them and, or, uh, share your personal, uh, experiences with others who ask questions. So, um, I know Corey will be at that expo. It sounds like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, 
poking around our booth. I know we're back in the back corner, uh, meaning that new kind of extended area that they that they've added on at the Hunt Expo. For those of you who have been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. And for those who haven't, you'll know when you walk in on the floor, there's kind of the main area rectangle. And then there's kind of a, a back room there that's still connected. Um, but I, I know the it's like back by all the game and fish uh, booths. So if you want, come find us there. Um, we'll be kind of in and out of there as we're doing our seminars and honestly covering for a couple other booths uh, that we're partnered with. Um, but we'll be also running our podcast out of there a little bit. So we'll, we'll be around and, um, you know, I know Corey and myself and Jason, we all, we love, uh, just talking hunting. That's why I'm doing this. That's why we do this. Um, because we enjoy this kind of stuff. So yeah, if you um, come to our seminars, it's, you know, it's meant to be interactive, come with good questions, ask them if, you know, we can't, it's only. They only let us talk up there for an hour, which is probably a good thing. But yeah. we'll, you know, unless unless Mark's seminar's up next, we'll be standing out outside afterwards, asking all the questions or answering any questions we can and yeah. talking hunting truly. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's just that's what we're there to do. So anybody who wants to come come talk hunting, swap stories, tell some lies, you know. Yeah, you know, and and I we don't ask we don't ask our partners for a lot of of stuff to give away throughout the year. In fact, we don't ask them for anything other than the stuff that we use. Um, but this is, this is the hunt expo is one of the times that we go to our partners and, um, and we actually ask them for stuff because, um, I I think it's important to show our appreciation to people who are willing to come and, uh, interact with us. And so we try to have, I mean, I'm looking at a, a box of it right now. Excuse me. And then there'll be, uh, I know there's, there's, uh, a plethora of other pieces of gear, uh, still, co- <clears throat> still coming from some of our, our key, uh, partners, <clears throat> excuse me. So it's just, it's a really good place to come and, uh, you're probably going to get some free gear out of it. So. Yeah. It's a pretty sweet free gear too. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, we got some t-shirts and hats and stuff, but we got some pretty sweet swag from our partners so yeah we don't give away we don't give away garbage so we don't use garbage no so okay i appreciate Um, you having me on man yeah no problem buddy we didn't go through some of the typical stuff um but uh i still uh i have one last question for you that i ask everybody and and before that though i also want to give you credit um i know you extremely well but Um, and so it's easy for me to say, but I, you know, I want to give you credit for being just a good friend, good hunting buddy. Um, I want to give you credit for just being a, um, downright expert on the things that you get involved in. Um, I think that's one reason we get along so well, because when we decide that we're going to get into something, we, uh, we can't just dabble. Uh, we have to dive in, uh, to the, to the rabbit hole, you know, head first and we, we try to learn as much about it and we, and we don't, we don't know everything about anything. We're constantly learning, um, you know, but, uh, but, you know, we, we spend a lot of time researching some of this stuff. So hopefully we've helped somebody. And so I want to give you credit for just, you know, being a guy that, um, I know, I know how much time and, uh, you know, effort you put into learning, uh, you know, guns and optics and, um, stuff like that. And not, not just because it's your job. Uh, your job is your, how you feed your addiction. I know, I know how you operate. So, uh, but just, just give you credit for being a, 
a great uh, backcountry hunter. Uh, you know, you've uh, you went from being a whitetail uh, tree stand hunter five or six years ago to a completely self-sufficient backcountry hunter who could honestly get it done, uh, you know, as well or better than anybody. So, thanks, man. Glad to be your hunting partner. Okay, one last question, Corey. Why why do you hunt the backcountry? It, uh, it's where the dreams happen. It's, uh, it, it, that's just, you know, bugle and elk is really it. I, I think uh, that first that first hunt you took me on, it, just that first screaming bull we got into, it just it changed my life. And the, the challenge and the, the ups and downs and the highs and lows and just the it, – it, incredibly hard to explain to somebody who's never done it but just that whole mental mindset of when you get to go back and um you you're not just like surviving back there you're back there with a purpose but you're also surviving and your your brain just almost like kicks over into a different gear where you get a the the whole idea is just carry a bunch of stuff around on your back and hope you get a chance at you know aerial in your target or shooting your target so it uh yeah it's fun and i get to hang out with you when i'm back there so perfect thanks for coming on buddy thank you man yep. good, good to hear from you can't wait to have be on again yep appreciate it we'll see you buddy bye hey everybody thank you for listening to the finding backcountry podcast if you enjoyed this episode Make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit FindingBackCountry.com.